Oh, we had we had clippity clap. Oh, clippity clap. Clippity. <laughs> <laughs> um, editing our last like four audios, we've called it a clippity clap every time. Okay, well, clippity clap. So clippity clap. Put it on the merch, kids. <laughs> they don't hear it, but we got it. Oh my All gosh. Right. Clippity clap okay. in one, two, three. Welcome to the True Crime ABC's podcast. I'm Danny, And I'm Sarah. Take a journey with us through our alphabet of true crime, one letter at a time. Listen through the end of each episode for reading recommendations and a sneak peek into what's going on in the podcast next week. This episode is supported by the letter H. And this week, H is for hijacking. Let's <laughs> dive right into these. Um, or like skydive right into these. Oh, ah! boy. Oh, boy. Okay, oh, you're boy. welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, so we have got an assortment of hijacking information for you all today. <laughs> it's like as long as one of our stories and we've pared it down. Aircraft hijackings, also known as skyjackings. I love that. <laughs> uh, which also maybe sounds like something you shouldn't be doing on an aircraft, just saying. Mm. They've been around since the early days of commercial aviation. By definition, hijacking is the unlawful seizure of an aircraft, but the ways that the aircraft can be seized, you know, varies greatly from skyjacker to skyjacker. Mm-hmm. Per the Aviation Safety Network, there were only three recorded hijackings in 2021 with no fatalities. Mm-hmm. In 2020, for obvious reasons, there were no skyjackings <laughs> or hijackings. It seems like the height of the hijacking epidemic was in the late 1960s through the mid-1970s. In 1969 alone, <laughs> uh, there were 86 hijackings with five reported fatalities. During this period, the political and ideological motivations became pretty common reasons for hijacking. It was usually groups standing up for some, you know, thing that were using the hijackings to draw attention to their organizations. So, for example, groups like the PLO, which is the Palestinian Liberation Organization, um, which also incorporated some other of the Palestinian groups like the PFLP and the Red Brigades, would use it so people would like hear their name mm-hmm. and have hopefully join their cause. And one of the most famous hijackings of that area, er, that era, the 1960s, 1970s, was the hijacking of TWA Flight 840 by the PLO, which actually resulted in the death of 22 people. So in response to that, that big wave, the government finally <laughs> implemented some stricter security measures for flying, including passenger screening where your ID and your ticket needed to match. You had to have the same name. And also, they installed reinforced cockpit doors on aircrafts. These measures basically made hijackings harder, which led to significant decrease in the incidents overall. While they did go down, though, they didn't disappear entirely. Well, of course not. So in the (laughs) 1980s and 90s, there was sort of a new threat um, that, that emerged. So not only were planes now being hijacked, but... Um, there were suicide hijackings. Mm-hmm. So, so the most tragic and consequential example of that style was the Pan Am Flight 103, which was over uh, Lockerbie, Scotland mm-hmm. in 1988, and that resulted in 270 fatalities oh, from that incident. So, nice. of course, this incident and others like it prompted further security enhancements. Mm-hmm. Um, the most significant turning point occurred on September 11, 2001, when there were 19 terrorists um, that hijacked four commercial airliners as part of the coordinated suicide attacks against the mm-hmm. um, Twin Towers and, of course, the Pentagon, all of that. So mm-hmm. World Trade Center, um, of course, in New York City was targeted. There <clears> were <throat> roughly 3,000 people involved in that event as well that lost their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was... For those of us that remember, a huge, <laughs> a huge shift in the way that um, aviation security operated. Oh yeah, you know, huge changes at airports. I know you know. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but you know, for those of us that remember being able to go and say, like, basically say goodbye to somebody at the gate, um, all oh. of that was gone. You know, you had basically to. There was tons of security measures that were added, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
um, based off of that. So, of course, in the years following 9-11, the hijackings became um, pretty rare because of all the security measures. Right. Extensive intelligence sharing, because, of course, it was a, a you know, mm-hmm. global collaborative event with uh, all the other intelligence agencies. Right. Um, and international cooperation. So, mm-hmm. of course, there were threats that continued to evolve uh, with concerns of the potential use of commercial aircraft as weapons, mm-hmm. um, which is terrifying. Oh, my God. Seriously. <laughs> While the traditional hijackings have declined significantly, um, incidents involving unruly pas- passengers, um, which are often fueled by, of course, alcohol or mental health issues, mm-hmm. um, have become sort of the new growing concern. Yeah, airlines and authorities have been working to address that, um, improving training for the cabin crews, being able to deal with other incidents, you know, that are becoming yep. more common, which for is sure. of course fun to deal with as a customer service <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, employee, um, and of course stricter regulations on that disruptive behavior. So, basically, the mm-hmm. history of hijacking spans uh, almost a century and has evolved from sort of the politically motivated um, suicide attacks to more recently, like, unruly passenger events mm-hmm. um, and less hijackings. Which, thank God, we've traded out, yep, you know, take it, I guess. mass murders for Karens. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> well, one of the uh, first aircraft hijackings was in 1931. And it happened in Peru when a group of rebels forced a pilot to divert his aircraft to an isolated location, which marked the beginning of aircraft hijackings. Just wild. 1931. Yeah. Very early. It's almost 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. And of course, the uh, most recent notable uh, hijacking was the 2001 September 11 attacks. Mm-hmm. Where when the Al Qaeda terrorist hijacked the four commercial airliners um, and crashed them into the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in a Pennsylvania field. Mm-hmm. So of course there were almost three thousand people that were killed um, in all of those attacks. So yeah, uh, and completely coincidentally, we did not plan this. <laughs> um, this is this episode will release on September tenth. I'd so like to say that we, we could take credit for that, but we... Right, it was, <laughs> listen, whatever, it, the universe was like, okay, here you go. Um, so we would just like to pay a quick tribute to the victims, survivors, first responders, and families of the September 11th attacks on the United States. For anyone that hasn't been to Ground Zero or the World Trade Center, um, I definitely have been more than once, and it's a, mm-hmm. a pretty great... And I don't want to say it's a great experience, but it's definitely yeah. a moving, yeah, uh, for sure, moving thing, uh, especially mm-hmm. for somebody who watched it on TV. So. Yeah, I think it's such an important moment. Like for us, we were teenagers. Mm-hmm. Like it was a a life altering moment. It was a moment that I realized that the world is real. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, like I'm not. I wasn't just some kid sitting in social studies class. Mm-hmm. Like it was. I don't know. It made the it made the world seem much bigger and more real. Yep. And we all have. I mean, everyone in our generation has their story, right? Yep. And it's just, it's crazy. So this week I am talking about the story of the Brillante Virtuoso, which is Ooh. which was a uh, ship. Uh, <clears throat> it was a Greek owned oil tanker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was primarily traveling, uh, near Yemen when okay. this event happened. So, um, this was in 2011 and this oil tanker is carrying this huge cargo of, it's like 140,000 tons of fuel oil. Oh so my gosh. You have to imagine it's worth like millions of dollars. Right. Millions. So this was July 5th, 2011 and... The next day, sort of the evening into the next day, there was, um, the, the boat itself was actually anchored out off the, the coast of Yemen, um, sort of in an area that's well known for pirates. So a little mm-hmm. suspicious, um, because they were just anchored out there. So they get attacked by a small boat of pirates. 
Um, they apparently approached. It's so like a little boat. I yeah, it was a very small like like definitely not anywhere near the size of this oil tanker. Right. <laughs> so which is kind of funny. <laughs> so they come up. They approach the Brillante Virtuoso Virtuoso um, while they're anchored, and apparently these pirates open fire on the boat. Oh God! At some point, it dies down. But the next day, so moving into July 7th, the situation mm-hmm. sort of escalates. And the crew that's on the, the actual oil tanker, the, the Virtuoso, um, they're unable to sort of keep the pirates at bay at this point. They, oh, gosh. Yeah. So the pirates repel onto the boat. They take control of the ship. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's sort of like mixed stories around why these pirates took the took the boat and all of that Mm -hmm. but they were thinking that it was possibly to hijack the actual cargo and take the car right because of course there's that's the value Mm -hmm. um however (laughs) (laughs) the next day they the the pirates completely abandoned the ship Mm -hmm. um apparently after allegedly sabotaging it and destroying it oh god and they leave in a lifeboat (laughs) So, huh. very strange because it's, you know, it's very weird that a pirate wouldn't, like, take the boat or take, like, why would you leave? Why would you right. go through all this work and then leave? I don't know. It's very weird. So, they leave the next day. So, July 9th, the the boat is just adrift off the coast of Yemen. It's mm-hmm. on fire. Um, it's severely damaged. And then, finally, the Coast Guard salvage team... They are able to get out to the boat, extinguish the fire, and it's towed to Arden in Yemen um, mm-hmm. for inspection, repairs, like basically to see what in the world, you know, what happened. Right. A little while passes on July 26th of 2011, so a little bit later that month, the Brillante Virtuoso is still in Yemen. They're still working on it, and apparently they, they experience another fire on the boat. Mm-hmm. This one is, of course, more severe, and the ship is deemed a complete and total loss. Oh, and my it's God. essentially abandoned in the harbor. Right. Very, very strange. So there's a couple of different reports that suggest that it might have been an insurance fraud attempt. Mm-hmm. Um, while there's other people that were thinking that it was definitely a genuine pirate attack, sort of gone right. awry, maybe something went wrong. Um, mm-hmm. But nobody actually died in the actual attacks. There hmm. were no casualties, no fatalities, right. which again, sort of unusual for this type of like pirate right. type of thing. Yeah, they're not like saving lives for fun. Yeah. So after the the pirates abandoned the ship, the crew members were able to get out again so that mm-hmm. there so there was no injuries. And there's sort of this speculation that this whole pirate attack had been staged mm-hmm. as part of an insurance fraud scheme. Right. There was an investigation that happened, and we'll talk about that, but there's a couple of weird things that, um, the reasons why they thought that this was a sort of staged attack. Mm-hmm. There was, of course, the fact that the pirates didn't take control of the boat. They left, which right. is super weird. Mm-hmm. Sort of the timing of the event was also weird because, again, they were anchored in a region known for piracy. Right. Why wouldn't? Why would you anchor there when you know that yeah. you're possibly in danger? Why didn't you? Why didn't the crew sort of take more action? Right. To pr- like to protect the ship or keep it safe. I don't know. So there's also the um. There's a, a couple of stories around the fact that the owners of the boat had some financial troubles going on. Oh, of course, convenient. Convenient moment, yep. right? Um, and then, of course, there was a $77 million insurance payout oh, that yikes. was claimed. Huh. So, very interesting. Um, I don't buy it. Right. After the attack, there was this marine investigator. So, he mm-hmm. was one, one of the people who was investigating the boat. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when he was looking over the boat and writing up his report. So one of the things that was weird about this is that when when David went to actually investigate the boat, his report of the ship and the report of the event, mm-hmm. he sent copies to his wife 
Um, so he sent an email with the report and copies of the photographs and he sent everything also to his wife. Right. He thought it was extremely suspicious because there was no evidence of bullet holes or explosions from grenades. So these pirates took over this ship. They reportedly opened fire, all of this thing, but there was no evidence of that on the boat. Right. So David Mockett, um, Captain Mockett is who we're talking about right now. I don't, I'm not sure if I mentioned his name or not, but he was sort of a, an old school um, Marine inspector. Um, and so he wasn't really, you know, he was, he was a tough guy. He wasn't really um, intimidated by bullies or things like that. So he knew that he was in a little bit of suspicious territory, I think, which is why he ended up sending that, um, that sort of evidence to his wife. Mm -hmm. Of course, they have an inquest because they want to talk about all of this, all of the things that are found. Right. So... Captain Mockett, um, he definitely found that the the evidence that he found on the boat was extremely suspicious. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, he started investigating further. And in July of 2011, on July mm -hmm. 20th, he had emailed that report about the case. He got into right. his car to drive home for lunch um, from his office, which was in Arden, in Yemen. Mm -hmm. And... After a short distance, a car bomb went off and killed him. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, Captain David Mockett is actually the only one that sort of died <laughs> because mm -hmm. of this or was murdered because of this incident, uh, I guess, that we know of right now. Um, mm -hmm. But it was, again, very, very strange that he had started digging into that and then was, of course, killed. Right. A little too um, convenient. Yeah. His wife and his best friend definitely think that it was because of his involvement in the investigation. Mm -hmm. And they did an inquest um, regarding his murder. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever was tried for it. His family is still trying to get justice. Oh, my um, gosh. But the detective superintendent from the Metropolitan Police Anti-Terrorism Department, mm -hmm. Jonathan Topman um, said during the inquest that he definitely supported the view that this, that David's death was linked to the discovery of the insurance mm -hmm. scam. Um, mm. So fast forward a little bit more. The police investigated this insurance job. Um, right. And essentially they did find evidence that this was an insurance fraud. So the judge, there was a judge in 2019 that actually rejected the claim for that $77 mm -hmm. million dollar payout. Yeah, fair. They, wow. uh, they definitely thought it was, so the judge decided that, um, the judge thought it was a fake, mm -hmm. fake hijacking um, that had been staged as part of that insurance fraud. Ugh. People suck. Mm -hmm. I'm still uh, willing to open my people suck cult. Yeah. Money. The ultimate motivator. I mean, truly. Definitely ah. uh, an interesting um, story this week. I thought it was mm -hmm. crazy that nobody was actually injured or hurt during the event. Right. Which, again, which isn't very much in line with the fact that it was a, f a scam. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah. And that somebody obviously found too much information. So. Yeah. Hmm. Ah. Well, wow, that was great. I mean, obviously not, right? Not, not the murder and the things, but the it was a great job. Story well told. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm, I'm glad thank you kind of went not with the aircraft route too. I, uh, you know, I started looking into this story. I'm like, okay, this is so this is so strange because there's so many different parts and pieces of it. Like, mm -hmm. it almost seems so clear that it was fraud. <laughs> You right. know what I mean? Yeah. But. Like, how did they not know that they were going to get caught? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yemen. I don't know the rules in Yemen, so maybe it's a little bit easier. To yeah. <laughs> well, and I know that whole, like, waterway area mm -hmm. is well, pretty well known for piracy and things. Yeah. Yep. So. Probably why they had a dock there. So they were, you know, hoping somebody would come take the boat. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Now I need to remember what 
Um, um, what's it called? Like the that port area, like the oh, the Gulf of Aden, Aden, mm-hmm. yeah. Aden. Yep. Is that what it was? Yeah, I'm just not sure that I'm saying it right. Aden, Aden. I just feel like that whole like Arabian Sea area. It's lawless. I feel like yeah, <laughs> it's, it's just like, like they're the... wild men out there. <laughs> Well, and I feel like, too, with all, like, the the upheaval in Somalia and places, mm-hmm. you know, over there, like, you're just, you're in a war-torn area in Middle East that, you know, people are doing whatever they can do to survive, and that sometimes means taking out other people, so. Right? Mm-hmm. I told you, this one checks a lot of boxes. <laughs> I mean, it really does. You don't often get, like, pirates and car bombs and... Mm-hmm. Things all wrapped up in one story. Yep. <laughs> okay, so my story this week. I'm so excited. Let's get into it. I'm I'm ready. <laughs> this is a top two favorite crime story of my life. So it was November 24th, 1971, the day before Thanksgiving, when a well-dressed man boarded Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 from Portland, Oregon, bound for Seattle. This man took his seat in row 18 at the back, ordered a bourbon, and smoked a few cigarettes, because you could do that on the flight then, (laughs) while the flight taxied. Shortly after takeoff, the man handed a note to flight attendant Florence Schaffner. Florence was a beautiful 23-year-old and was used to being hit on by passengers in general, and probably just by men, because she's real pretty. Florence, by the way, also kind of looked like my mom. Hmm. Like, 1971 Florence was like 1980 Deb. Nice. For sure. Yeah. Same hair, same face. It's wild. Now, Florence, thinking it was just another passenger passing her his number and information, she put the note in her pocket and kind of continued her onboard duties. But after a few minutes, the man told the flight attendant that she really ought to look at that note because he had a bomb. Hmm. Sure enough, the note indicated that he had a bomb and she should sit next to him. After she sat, he then showed her his briefcase filled with wires and red sticks, which appeared to be explosives. He asked for the handwritten note back, removing one piece of potential evidence from the future puzzle. Florence believed this man was for real, right? That he was Mm -hmm. a serious hijacker. And so she used the phone at the back of the aircraft to contact the cockpit and alert them to the situation. This man was Dan Cooper, incorrectly but more infamously known as one D.B. Cooper. Yeah. So, fun fact, speaking of Deb, so first of all, Florence Schaffner looked like my mom. At least back, you know, back then, Mm -hmm. obviously. Yeah. And my mom also spent most of her adult life working for Northwest Airlines. Mm -hmm. Until it was bought by Delta, in which case, whatever. But, (laughs) this was a story that was frequently discussed in my household growing up. My mom, obviously, working for the airlines, was like a She's like a person who loves the airlines. She like, you know, she it, it's her jam. It, she knows it in and out. She was a trainer for Northwest and for Delta for a really long time. So airline stuff, like we were just like yeah. an airline family. Was this part of like the Northwest like employee lore? Like did people... I'm sure this had to be common conversations. Especially because, again, I feel like... At least back then, maybe not so much now, because I feel like maybe it's just like a job now. Mm-hmm. But like back then, the airline was your life. Like yeah. there, it, it's one of those all-consuming jobs. You have to work holidays, long hours, weird hours. I feel like it. It, it is a a lifestyle mm-hmm. <laughs> in addition to a career choice. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, DB Cooper. Here we are again. This is a top two for me. It's like right up there with the Lacey Peterson case for me. So that will come up. At some point. Also, fun fact, this is a me and you note. The letter S falls on my birthday week, so I feel like we should do Sarah's favorites. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. So, D.B. Cooper, actually named Dan Cooper. Okay. We'll talk that's about not that not. I was going to say, that's not an alias, another alias. Yeah, no. So, the name on his ticket was Dan Cooper. Did you have to show ID for tickets back then? Not yet, but okay. that'll be part of this. Okay. He was called, I mean, he wrote Dan Cooper on his thing, which there is another connection later in this to that name. Mm-hmm. But a reporter incorrectly heard one of the FBI agents call him D.B. Cooper. And so the reporter said D.B. Cooper. And let's be honest, D.B. Cooper sounds way more badass than Dan Cooper. Mm-hmm. So they it kind of stuck. Yeah. 
That's definitely, so. uh, what do they call that? A stage name? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> like, it's, that's just not real. So, Cooper calmly relayed his demands to the flight crew. He requested $200,000 in cash, which adjusted for inflation, I remembered to look it up this time, is about nice. $1.5 million, which seems kind of conservative. Like, I feel like maybe, well... I mean, I guess back then that could buy you like 40 houses, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> uh, now it buys one half of my home. That's annoying. E is for economics. Yes. <laughs> e is for ill. Why is it like this? Um, so he requested the $200,000 in cash, which is now $1.5 million, four parachutes, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane for his escape. The airline and authorities decided to cooperate with him. At this point, again, we had talked about this with our statistics. There were a lot of hijackings Mm -hmm. happening. Most of them were like to get out of the country type hijackings, like to get into Cuba or whatever. So I think at this point, so many of the airlines had such good insurance that most of the authorities were willing to just cooperate because insurance was going to pay out on Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So it was just worth it to just, you know, whatever. So the airline and the, the airline also helped pay for some of the ransom. When the plane landed in Seattle, DB Cooper or Dan Cooper allowed the 36 passengers PS a large Boeing 727 with only 36 passengers. Hello, what a dream. Oh, my gosh. Um, Air travel yeah. in the 70s? Like, Oh, what? my God. Like, a third of the plane was empty, or two-thirds <laughs> of the plane was empty. Come on. Now you they cancel flights mm. every five seconds. I can't ever fly standby anymore. Anyway, um, so he let the 36 passengers off, but the crew remained on board. Now, they had told the passengers on the flight that, there was just a maintenance error, which also, when you're flying in a plane, that's not what you want to hear. So, I mean, no, I can't. Im- it's not. Ideal. I can't imagine that's any less anxiety-inducing than, hey, somebody's hijacked the plane. But whatever. The also, wings have fallen off. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Do not uh, be the alarmed. Engine, no more. <laughs> the engine has completely fell out of the plane. My bad. Oh god. The landing gear broken. So, funnily enough, what in one of the documentaries or some or something that I read mm-hmm. had mentioned that. The passengers knew so little that one guy had deplaned and been like, oh, shit, I left something on the plane and ran back on to get it. Oh, gosh. Got it. And then left the plane again, (laughs) which is just (laughs) wild. It's crazy. So um, the FBI had gathered all the ransom money, um, all in $20 bills, which obviously they marked. Clearly. They had all the serial numbers written down. Whatever. Here's um, your money. Like Yeah. Like just take it, have funsies. <laughs> they also managed to get four parachutes, which included two main parachutes and then two reserve chutes. Mm-hmm. And crazily enough, one of the chutes was accidentally a dummy chute, like used for training, just Oops. to like show people. Yeah. Oopsies. Because they were oop shit, I just knocked the shit out of my keyboard. Um they were provided with these chutes from like a local skydiving instructor who wasn't actually told what they were for. So he was just like, well, here are the four shoots that I have right now. Like, have fun. Okay, so it wasn't like an intentional sabotage or no, anything like that? No, it was like, just like, yeah, he just okay. accidentally, whatever. And the FBI didn't really want to mess with any of the shoots because he asked for four, which made you think like he wanted one for himself, an ex- a reserve for himself, and then might take a hostage. Or he had accomplices or... Or he had accomplices. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, P.S., if you're going to take me hostage and force me to jump out of the plane, like, just kill me. I don't... First of all, you, no. Like, no. You're going to have to take the plane down if you think I'm jumping out of it. As my wonderful father would say, <laughs> and had said many, many times in his years on this planet, uh, why would I jump out of a perfectly good plane? <laughs> like that. <laughs> and yes, precisely. Agreed. Like... I will go on a very tall roller coaster, hashtag Cedar Point, any day of the week. You will not find me jumping out of a plane. Absolutely not. (laughs) No, thank you. Basically, so D.B. Cooper got everything he had asked for. And then the plane takes off and he instructs the flight crew, well, let's go to Mexico. And the flight crew was like, okay, what? Why? And 
basically told him, well, we can't go to Mexico. <laughs> and he was like, okay, well then just, you know, head towards Mexico. We'll just Get go me as close as you can. Right. We'll just go in that direction. That's fine. <laughs> so at one point, one of the flight attendants, Tina Mucklau, asked Cooper if he had a grudge specifically against Northwest Airlines. And he replied, which is, ugh, it's this is wild. It's not because I have a grudge against your airlines. It's just because I have a grudge. <laughs> oh, come on. And he didn't elaborate any further. Like, come on. What a pansy freaking Why didn't response. she ask more questions? She should have asked more questions. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I mean he had moment. a bomb. It, whatever. Yeah. And I assume, you know, maybe he'd just be like, <laughs> fuck this shit and blow her up. But who, you know, who knows? Uh, um, so anyway, so Cooper receives the ransom, the parachutes, all the passengers had deplaned. He ordered the crew to the front of the plane, and they were instructed to fly to Mexico City at a low altitude and a very slow speed, like so low and so slow that the pilot was like, I'm not even sure I can do that in this aircraft. And Dan Cooper told him, I promise you this aircraft can do it. Hmm. And he gave him very specific measurements for travel. Like, for example, the fact he told them that the flaps needed to be at exactly 15 degrees which was a characteristic specific only to that Boeing 727. Was he a pilot? Oh, we will get there, girl. <laughs> so this specific plane had a few features that were paramount to Cooper's escape. For one, it had something called an aft stair exit, which was basically like a set of stairs at the back that could be lowered during flight in the event of an emergency exit. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. So (laughs) one of Cooper's demands upon taking back off was that the landing gear stay down and that the aft stairway be out as well. And again, the pilots were basically like, "Um, we can't do that, bro. (laughs) And he's like, okay, fine. Somebody just show me how to do it then. Yeah. Was his thought just like, I'm going to just walk off the steps? I get, yeah, just, you know, we're going to go up. I'm going to book it out the steps with my parachute. That's going to be fine. <laughs> so Tina Mucklow actually shows him how to open up the hatch for the aft staircase or stairway and how to open the door and get the stairwell down and all of that. Mm-hmm. At one point, Tina Mucklow had witnessed Cooper taking apart one of the chutes to fashion into like a little knapsack that could carry his, you know, $200,000. So while Cooper had requested a suitable bag to carry the money in, the FBI gave him the money in a paper bag. Of course they did. Yep. And the money weighed about 19 pounds. So that paper bag was not making it in the $10,000 or in the 10,000 foot altitude that he had requested they fly at. So he started taking apart a chute to like fashion a knapsack to put all the money in. Mm -hmm. And he picked the best chute to take apart. Did he pick like the dummy this, chute? No, he picked the... So the one he put the money in was the most safe, oh. easiest to use chute, which gives us a little more information about what he knows. Okay. And the chute he decided to, t- to take as his main chute was a military issue chute. Mm. But it was like the second to worst chute available other than the dummy chute. Okay. So his reserve chute was actually better than his main chute, which is funny. Hmm. So they're flying and the flight crew feels the pressure change in the cabin, which means that Cooper has managed to successfully open the aft stairway. Mm-hmm. Shortly after, the crew also felt like specific oscillations that made that like the plane was shifting back and forth in a way that made them think, okay, he had just jumped Mm -hmm. from the rear stairway, which was open. So he parachuted into the night, disappearing into the darkness, and the exact location of his jump remains a subject of debate among investigators still. So, the manhunt. Despite an extensive manhunt and an expensive one that included search teams, helicopters, um, the military was involved, like Mm -hmm. his whereabouts are unknown. This case is unsolved. It's wild. So with the unforgiving terrain where he jumped, along with the adverse weather conditions, like it was. Do we know where, like where approximately he jumped? So there were jets in the air that were following the plane, but it was nighttime. And they never actually saw him jump off. The only guess is that the pilot felt those oscillations 
And that's all. But, like, they needed an exact time to figure out exactly when mm-hmm. he would have jumped, exactly where he would have landed, in addition to knowing, like, the wind speed at that time, the exact mm-hmm. flight speed at that time. It, it There's, like, a big mathematical algorithm, I'm sure, that figures this shit out. None of the um, fighter, or none of the jet pilots had seen him jump. This- so they're not totally sure. So this question you can totally cut out. This is more yeah. for me, but like, yeah. So the us. So if he jumped off and like got sucked into the engine, they would know that, right? Oh like, my god, I'm so glad you asked this question because I did not put it in my notes, but I know the answer. Like, wouldn't they have a body or at least like particles? <laughs> yes. So they actually. I mean, things get sucked into jet engines all the time. Right. I I assume it's it's very hot. It's moving very quickly. I'm sure that. A body would yeah. get made, you know, turn into paste or whatever fairly yeah. quickly. Um, in this case, though, they did actually do tests where they, like, took up, they did, like, dummy flights and then, like, threw like a, dummy, a similarly like a, yeah. weighted thing Jelly. into the, off of the aft staircase. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And none of them went into the air, into the engine. Okay. So it is... They did test that. Like, that was a, a running theory. It's like, well, maybe he just, you know, got chewed up by the mm-hmm. engine and sucks to suck. But I don't know. But, yeah. But they did test it. That was okay. not one of the ways that he, that, okay. it's not one so of the things So it's like, obviously, happen. if they landed and it was like, oh, we hit something big. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> Whoops. Whoopsie. Why is there, pay- why are there Benjamin Franklin's? Yeah. In the- there it goes. Why are there Andrew Jackson's? Oh, no. Andrew Jackson's. <laughs> Why are there, where's, where's that 200 grand that we thought we had? Oh, whoops. So oh it was a really bad night to be jumping out of this airplane. First of all, the terrain below is not a happy, like tons of trees would not have been a very safe place to land. Secondly, the weather conditions were really bad. At the height that they were flying or that the altitude they were flying, mm-hmm. it was negative one degrees. What? Jeez. And when he landed, it would have been... Pretty cold, like maybe in the 20s uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Obviously, we're Americans. We go Fahrenheit. (laughs) It would have been very cold. Maybe not he would have died cold when he landed, but it it would have been not a a pleasant evening for him. Yeah. Especially because he was wearing, I mean, again, in the 1970s, when you went on a flight, you dressed up. So I have exactly what he's wearing. He was wearing a russet colored sport coat, which is for the men listening to this, because let's be honest, it's like a deep maroon, like a brownie maroon color, mm-hmm. like russet potatoes, um, dress slacks, dress shoes, and a pair of sunglasses. Again, with money strapped to his body in a makeshift bag. <laughs> so again, he did not use the most reliable parachute as the one he took or as you know, the one he jumped mm-hmm. with. So it's just, it's a mystery. Oh my gosh. So what did they find? What evidence? Get to the evidence. Let <laughs> me tell you, there are many conspiracy theories about D.B. Cooper's uh, disappearance. I'm going to talk you through some of them. So the first one is probably the easiest, most obvious, would be great for the FBI. The ma- You know, one of the big theories is that he simply did not survive the jump, mm-hmm. right? The conditions were really harsh. It was not a great night to be parachuting. You know, based on what he chose for a parachute, he may not be the most experienced jumper. So like Logically, it makes sense. It's logically on right. the table. <laughs> exactly. He may or may not have died. Next, we have the survival theories. So this theory obviously suggests that he successfully parachuted from the plane. He survived the jump into the wilderness and knew enough about the Pacific Northwest that he could survive. Building off of that theory, so some think that Dan Cooper, like, went north into Canada. That's one Mm -hmm. of the theories. Because, and that maybe Dan Cooper was actually a Canadian citizen. Mm. And just made his way back to his homeland. So there's a French-Canadian comic called, uh, in French, it's like Les Aventures de le Dan Cooper or whatever. <laughs> but it was really The Adventures of Dan Cooper. Yes. Um, which follows a character named Dan Cooper, who is a Canadian military pilot. What? So they think maybe he took that alias from that character. Well, That's one of the running theories. Yeah, that definitely which, um, makes sense. Obviously, 
And if you see, like, the, if, I'll, and this is something I'll put in um, the sources, if you look it up, it does kind of look like him. It's like mm-hmm. a dark haired, like, kind of nice looking guy, but also pretty plain. Like, it, he looked like an everyday guy. Mm-hmm. He was just, just your average Joe. Um, you know, he was not super tall, just average height, average weight. Hmm. darkish hair they said that he had um oh my god what was the term? oh swarthy skin so he was like olive complected okay swarthy haven't heard that word in a while. i know right <laughs> but one of the flight attendants said it looked like he was wearing makeup so what? maybe he wasn't so swarthy like maybe he was just in disguise hmm. ah i love it. okay so the next theory is that he had an accomplice on the ground Mm-hmm. And that this accomplice may have been waiting for him. You know, maybe they were keeping an eye out for him. There were some um, reports of flares oh. in the area. And D.B. Cooper, no, words are hard. D.B. Cooper took the briefcase that had the quote unquote bomb in it. In telling the FBI about the bomb later, Florence Schaffner said that the sticks were red and apparently dynamite sticks are tan. Mm. But you know what are red? Emergency flares. Oh my gosh. So the accomplice theory makes sense if he was lighting off flares yep. to, you know, for his accomplice to come get him. His accomplice may have driven up, got him, and then they drove away with their $1.5 million mm-hmm. in current money. Um, if they were Canadian, fun- it would have been worth more. Oh yeah, for <laughs> sure. Another theory is that Cooper was actually a CIA agent. And that he was a covert operative working for, like, the CIA or the FBI or somebody. And that his ability to vanish without a trace was just really good training and government connections. Hmm. What was the point of that, though? I don't know. I mean, maybe he was, like, didn't want to be in the CIA anymore. So he, like, used his his skills to Mm -hmm. disappear, I guess. Mm -hmm. Another thing is that he was hiding in plain sight. He just assumed a new identity. Continued a normal life, blended into society. You know, there weren't digital records then, so it was a whole lot easier to... Be somebody new on paper. Be somebody different. I mean, he just wrote a name on his plane ticket. He could go back to being who he actually was. What a wild time. Like, what a, I know, what a time right? to be alive. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. There's kind of this local legend in the Pacific Northwest where people claim to have encountered you know, a mysterious man who fit Cooper's description. Mm-hmm. Um, they often kind of, the, like, those accounts involve a lot of people saying, like, there's a man who was a recluse and he always had cash and, you know, just kind of yeah. local lore type stuff. Obviously, another version is that there was an in-plane accomplice yeah. um, and someone on board helped him escape, which makes total sense. And kind of building off of the he survived theory or all the he survived theories in 1980 so almost a decade later there was a young boy named brian ingram who was digging a fire pit with his family near the columbia river in vancouver washington mm-hmm. while they were digging brian uncovered a very very decayed package buried in the sand that was kind of partially exposed inside the package were damp decaying 20 dollars bills totaling nearly six thousand dollars Later, those bills were confirmed to be part of the ransom money given to D.B. Cooper during the flight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, again, that's significant because it means that that was 20 miles southwest of where the plane's flight path mm-hmm. was. So maybe he got there. Maybe he left it there specifically so they thought he would have fallen into the water and died. If it's only 6000 of the 1.5, I wonder if it's like right. if he broke it right, up right. and buried like, it like a squirrel. Yeah. Like- <laughs> The FBI, like, really analyzed that money for clues, but the bills were in such poor condition that there weren't yeah. any fingerprints. And back then, we didn't have DNA yet, so um, it just sort of added more to the lore that he successfully escaped and uh, made it out. I have a weird question. Yeah. It's only, it was, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's what, like 50, 40 years ago when they were doing this yeah. investigation? hmm Money is not actually paper. It's like cloth. Right. I think, though, that it had been in the water for so long. That okay. Like, just natural really breaking down. I, don't, I mean, because like... 10 years and almost 10 years in water. Yeah. Okay. So, especially okay. since they found it on shore, so it may have been getting, like, beaten up. Yeah, that's fair. Another thing is that there may have been an FBI cover-up. 
But again, it was most like, like, most commonly accepted is that he either died or he survived and went back to his regular Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of suspects of people who have pretty consistently been accused of being D.B. Cooper. Um, One is Richard McCoy, who was a former Army Green Beret and a very experienced skydiver. Um, He actually had done a similar hijacking in 1972, demanding ransom and parachutes, which made people think that he was D.B. Cooper. Um, He was actually killed in a shootout with law enforcement officers in 1974. Oh. Next is Kenneth Christensen, who looks most like the sketches, as far as I'm concerned. Like, he's the one that makes most sense to me. Mm -hmm. And here's why. He's a former military paratrooper, which would explain why Mm -hmm. he took the military shoot. He was also a Northwest Airline pilot. (laughs) Yeah. 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 His family (laughs) claimed that he confessed to being D.B. Cooper on his deathbed in 1994. He Hmm. looks similar to D.B. Cooper. The only thing is the height wasn't quite right. I think he was actually taller than what was, Mm -hmm. taller or shorter than what was, you know, reported, whatever. I feel like that would be hard to do, like, assess somebody's height in an airplane. Yeah. Well, and again, we know that, you know, um, eyewitness testimony is never, is never as accurate as you want it to be. Although, if you're a flight attendant, they were on that flight with him for hours, so who knows? Um, Dwayne Weber is another suspect. Um, his wife claimed that he made some cryptic, cryptic comments also on his deathbed in 1995. And his wife actually believed he was Cooper and even identified sketches of Cooper as resembling her late husband. Mm-hmm. But again, no definitive proof. Um, Sheridan Peterson was an engineer and experienced skydiver, also suspected by some researchers to be D.B. Cooper because he had extensive knowledge of the area where the ransom money was found. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Again, no concrete evidence linking him to the hijacking. Oh, Siri, get out of here. Um, no concrete evidence linking him to the hijacking. Um, there's also another guy. Uh, his last name's Rackstraw. I heard. I was watching the. There's a documentary, a a full season documentary on Netflix about um, DB Cooper. Mm-hmm. And this Rackstraw guy, like a lot of people, really had it out for him. He claims he's not. Again, there's no concrete evidence. Sup- you know, supporting it, but you know, there a lot of people have a lot of their own opinions about who it is. <laughs> um, but really, at the end of the day, DB Cooper is an American enigma, right? Mm-hmm. Who was he? Did he survive the jump into the wilderness, or did he die? The FBI officially closed the case in 2016 leaving us with the only unsolved aviation hijacking in United States history. Uh, it's mm. one of my favorites. I love it so <laughs> freaking much. Uh, I good. love it so much. I was, I told my mom's like the only person I told what the theme was this week. Oh, nice. And she was like sending me Facebook messages <laughs> about like, oh my God, Sarah, I just read a new article about this. And P.S. That is not at all what my mom sounds like. No. Actually, my... My mom sounds exactly like I, or I sound exactly like my mother. In fact, sometimes I'll answer the phone when my brother calls, and he'll be like, shit, did I call mom? I was like, no, it's me. It's just me. My mom and I both have the same polite voice. You know what I mean? So obviously my mom was in in customer service forever, you know, working as a gate agent and a ticket count and a CSA at for Northwest. So like... She, you know, we both answer the phone the same way and like the same, like, hello, like in the same, like uppity downity <laughs> tone. And so I am my mother and that is that. That's okay. Oh, also I'm dedicating the story to Mama Bear Deb, my Mama Bear Deb, not your Mama Bear Deb. That's okay. Um, <laughs> and although your Mama Bear Deb, we also love and adore. Um, but, you know, this one's, this one's for you, Mama. Shout out Mama Deb. Mama Deb. Uh, P.S. Danny and I both have Mama Debs in case you guys are confused. <laughs> it's another one of the things. So not only do Danielle and I sound alike, we look alike. <laughs> Our moms have the same names. It's very, it's meant very to be. great. It's meant to be. Yeah, but, yeah that's D.B. Cooper. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I love so, it. So the suspects. Okay, my question. Are the flight attendants still alive? What was their take on it? Like... So I know Tina Mucklow did an interview like 20 years or 30 years later or something. Tina feels a little sus to me. 
Yeah, well, I mean, maybe. I don't know. I don't think either of them lived particularly extravagant lives or anything. She feels like she's got accomplice energy. I, they, I, you know, they seemed like nice ladies who were calm, cool. Maybe. Oh, listen, I allegedly, I'm not putting that out there. Don't come for no. us, Tina. Oh my gosh. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, it just, you know, I don't know. I didn't, I watched a lot of interviews and things with them. Neither of them seemed suspicious, but like you're a flight attendant, like you're used to acting a certain way. So mm-hmm. maybe they're just really good actresses. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't know. I freaking love this story. I want like... <laughs> You know, if I got, you know, some people are like, if I could have the answer to any true crime story, most people say like John Bonet or whatever. Mm. No, no, it's D.B. Cooper for this one all the way. So next week's episode will be supported by the letter I. Check us out on social media and give us your best guesses on what our theme for next week will be. If you'd like to hear more from us, please check us out on Instagram, TikTok, and Patreon at True Crime ABC Podcast. Or email us your thoughts, ideas, and listener stories to truecrimeabcpodcast at gmail.com. Book recommendations. My book recommendation this week is called D.B. Cooper and Flight 305, Reexamining the Hijacking and Disappearance by Robert H. Edwards, and it was released on the 50th anniversary of D.B. Cooper's hijacking. I thought that was incredible. That's pretty good. So this week I am bringing Dead in the Water, a true story of hijacking, murder, and a global maritime conspiracy, um, written by Matthew Campbell and mm-hmm. Kit Chilel. Ooh. Yes. Um, so this book is um, written by two investigative journalists who sort of dig into the story more. They actually... Um, get into a lot of the details and a lot of the inner workings of the um, sort of conspiracy and the the networking that was involved with this case. So mm-hmm. definitely uh, an interesting read if you like going through all the, the little details of oh yeah of this this uh, sort of conspiracy hijacking case. Mm-hmm. So it's got a lot of it hits a lot of the uh, checks a lot of the boxes fraud, yeah. conspiracy, hijacking. Ooh. All sorts of all sorts of good stuff. Love it. <laughs> Shout out to my coworkers who keep coming up and telling me they listen to episodes, and it's Yay. really exciting. <laughs> I love it. Um, we do have stickers now, so um, we're gonna set up Patreon in a way that, like, if you sign up and support us on Patreon, we'll send you a sticker. Woo-hoo. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thanks, everybody.